Welcome to the Mind Food Podcast, where we deep dive into the world of smart thinking content. I'm your host, Michael McHugh, the founder of Mind Food. At Mind Food, we believe in providing our listeners with the latest and greatest in community, health, beauty and style, home and travel, food and drink, and much more. In each episode, we explore fascinating topics, interview experts, and provide insights into living your very best life. This is the Mind Food Podcast. Today, we talk to author Nicole Madigan, whose Mind Food story, Generation of Boys Struggling to Cope, one of our most read stories online and in the magazine this year. Nicole, why is this generation of boys struggling so much? What's changed? I think a lot has changed. A huge amount of, of change has taken place. And I think some of that change has been really positive, but a lot of it has brought about a lot of challenges. And I think the reason that article resonated with people is because we're all, as parents, we're all trying to manage those challenges with our kids. And I guess if you start from the positive elements, the positive things are we've learnt more about boys as parents and as a society. We try to, we understand mental health. We understand that we need to discourage gender stereotypes and gender norms. And we're aware of the issues, but there are just so many more issues. And those issues impact boys from such a young age now. And they're really just not equipped to deal with a lot of those concepts that I think that are thrust upon them. As parents, we're not quite equipped to deal with it either because it's not something we went through. So it's quite a it's quite a lot for everyone to deal with. And I think technology is really at the heart of a lot of those problems. For us parents, there is, however, almost a lack of awareness sometimes that you're not quite sure what they're looking at on phones or whatever. It's Absolutely. There's one of being, okay, I know I have to do something, but I'm actually not quite sure what I'm dealing with here. Yes, absolutely. Because social media in, in particular is an absolute minefield. You know, it's a minefield for kids and it's a it's a, it's a whole new world for parents. And of course, with each each time we get our head around an app or a social media site, you know, a new one pops up and the kids are, are well ahead of us in terms of what they can do and what they can access. The other thing is, I think, is that our experience of those social media sites are so different because they're designed to feed your interests. So, you know, what your son's seeing on TikTok as he scrolls through it is going to be something totally different to what you're seeing when you go through TikTok. So I think, yes, we, we don't really know what's going on unless we really dive in. Do you think, though, peer pressure is so prevalent now? I think it hasn't it always been there, but are we just aware of it now, the influence that peer pressure really plays in a young boy's life? Yeah, I think there's two two parts to that story. I think we've often underestimated the impact of friends and popularity for boys, quite focused on it with girls. With boys, we tend to focus on, on physical violence and, and that sort of thing. But I think there's more to it than that. But I sort of found that when my sons got older, a lot of the issues weren't all that different to the girls, but they didn't feel like they could necessarily talk about it because they're not boys' issues, your appearance or your height or your weight or your intellect and that sort of thing. But I think they do matter to boys, but it's harder for them to articulate that and they often express that through aggression. And I think the other thing is that peer pressure is around all of the time now thanks to social media. You cannot escape it. It's there at school. It's there at home. It's there wherever your phone is and it's there for public consumption. So um, the humiliation levels are significantly higher and more intense. Yeah. When do you think, though, it really does start in terms of 
boys assuming they have to be a certain way. When you think back, you know, you've got boys yourself. I've got a son. When was it in their lives or when do you think it is that they start to realise I have to be or act a certain way? I think it's quite young and I think I noticed this the most and with the most surprise with my eldest because, of course, I hadn't experienced it before and I was happily going along with his interests and being guided by him and I can still remember quite clearly when he came home from school and said, oh, I can't watch ABC2 for kids anymore because the kids have said this and I was thinking, oh, isn't everybody doing that? But I think he was only oh, he would have only been eight or something like that when he was starting to come home, possibly even earlier, and saying that, you know, this is not cool, I can't do this, I can no longer do this. And and he made an effort to change who he was. And as a new mother or a first-time mother at that stage with my eldest, I thought that was quite quite yeah. sad. Um, How do we navigate, though, as parents when we start to realise that, like you just gave that example, which I think a lot of us are like that. They come back from school and all of a sudden yo-yos aren't popular and who knew because we've been collecting yo-yos or whatever it is yeah and that outside influence how do we as parents maintain that growth of a boy that we love and cherish and yet there's this big impact of an outside influence how do we navigate that as parents because that's actually the really hard part isn't it it's it's a really hard thing and I think it's harder now than ever before because I think when we were kids, parents were probably the, the biggest influence on our lives and maybe our friends, possibly TV news or something like that. But our competition now as parents is so much broader. It's everything on that phone that we're competing with. So I think communication is the key and that's harder than ever before too because you don't spend that time on a Tuesday night watching the same show together where we're all sitting around and, and have that banter that leads us to talking about those big issues that we might see on TV or a show. So I think now it's about really not getting caught up in the busy and making the time to communicate with your kids and sitting down, whether it's before they go to bed or on the way home from school or even an allocated time because we're busy as well as parents trying to work harder than ever before and everybody's busy. But I think giving them the space to talk freely without taboos or anything like that and giving them a bit of space to to just roll out what they have to say or what they're thinking is the way of getting into their minds. It's hard though to do because they have to be ready for that. It's all very well making time because it suits you as a parent and you're busy, come on, we've done this, we've done this. Now let's just sit down and have a chat. That often I have found in the past with my kids is not the time they want to talk. And if anything, it was always for me in the car. If I was just with one of them, go, you trapped in that bubble. And it was just that moment with dad. That's often when those sort of conversations could happen. There was no judgment. It was just chatting. Because outside of that, it's very hard. I always found it as a parent to make that time. You're right. Sometimes as they're going off to bed or they've done homework and they're a little bit tired and that you they might want to start talking but then all of a sudden they're back onto social media and and you've lost them again in researching the story did you find any sort of tips or ideas of when is a good time or an environment to set up a great time to talk to boys particularly well I think it's about and based on the experts that I spoke to it's about getting to know your son first and then being able to identify that time like, like you have done with the car 
for me personally, I used to have that very same thing until the phone started coming out. <laughs> and then it became bedtime. Yes, or organized chats haven't worked for me. My, my kids haven't really responded to that, although there was that was a strong suggestion with the experts. And I think some kids probably are happy to sit and talk. For me, that wasn't something that worked, but bedtime was the time for me. And you sort of had to accept that you might want your kids to go to bed at eight o'clock because you've got other things to do, but that's the time when they're really starting to spill. So I I think essentially it's getting to know your own child. So being in tune to what they're saying, when they're saying it, if they say something when you're watching TV or walking past, things like that. And their friends too. Another suggestion was try to get to know their friends. So if you can have them at your place and you can see how they're interacting with their friends and how those friends are influencing them, that gives you an insight too into the things that that are interesting to them. And sometimes that can be the conversation starter that you need is something that they're already interested in and they're quite happy to know that mum or dad is also interested in that and, and let them start to open up. It is, and this is nothing new, but it is that art of communication But also, I think, which was a really interesting point in the feature was that it's all about those case studies of boys watching, listening, being around really active, good example around dealing with people and around informed sort of thinking around things. And I think as parents, sometimes you forget that, particularly, as you said, everyone gets busy. But it is difficult as a parent, isn't it, being that role model sometimes? It really is because, as you say, we get caught up in our own lives and we know that uh, sort of the number one role models, they're us. So, you know, how we're acting at home and how we're interacting with our spouses and how we're interacting with the kids and the siblings and talking to them, or if we ask them to move out of the way, or are we saying it politely or are we on edge or angry? So I think you've got to make a conscious effort to uh, role model the right behaviours because the role models that they're seeing on social media sometimes aren't so good. And I think social media is unfortunately designed that way to, to thrust these horrible realities and viewpoints and products, even like in the case of vaping and things like that in front of our kids. So often their role models are not so good. And, and making that worse, I think, is sometimes the boys think those role models are positive because of the way they frame things obviously in the spotlight at the moment is Andrew Tate. And I think the reason boys gravitate to him is because he frames what he's saying in such a way that they think he's relating to them and they just don't have the developed brain to really contextualise what he's actually saying or the messages that he's delivering. Yeah, but I think we just have to continue to have those conversations and demonstrate the behaviour. Well, it is also that broader picture, isn't it? Because I think they can pull out what they want from the Andrew Tate so they can almost that herd mentality identify with it be part of a supposedly cool group get a few catchphrases throw those around and before you're you're popular you're in at the same time we want boys to think hang on actually that thinking isn't that great but when you're 12 13 14 where it's that peer pressure again and you don't want to step out of the the crowd Well, that's right. Yeah. It's a two-pronged effect because they're soaking up those messages and over time will start to believe them. And But even if they don't, you're right. It's very hard to be the one to come and say, well, no, that's not cool. Or I don't agree with that. It's very hard to do as a young boy. And I think we underestimate the impact that ostracization can have on a boy as well as a girl. It's, yeah, I think that's underestimated a lot on 
on boys, how friendships and lack of friendships and cruel words can also impact boys. It's not just physical violence. No, and it doesn't take much. I think we all know of that one line a teacher said or that time your mother said, or we've all kind of been there. And I think as parents, it is hard not to throw your own examples in to when you're talking with your kids because it's and I'm not going down the line of well in my day but it is hard sometimes to draw a line to not talk about that when you're trying to help your kid get through something. It's very difficult because there there are a lot of instances where you can relate and you can provide a good example to, to show that hey I know what you're going through but of course a teenager at the best of times let alone one that's using technology that they know their parents have no idea about it's very easy for them to just say you just don't understand you simply don't understand and that's if they talk to you about it at all I think the the biggest issue is getting them to open up about what's happening because as I said before I think that solitude that increased solitude that kids are having where they're in their room on a device rather than in the main room on the TV but it reduces their opportunities to say things and I guess as parents you know, something I've found is to really watch if you walk past the room and they're on the phone and sometimes you can see on their face when something's just not right. And I think the concept of this is a personal opinion, but the concept of that, that children need a whole lot of privacy, I, I don't agree with. I think parents need to know what's going on. Otherwise, you simply can't do anything about what's going on because you won't know. That's a controversial viewpoint. Everyone has a different view there on how much privacy kids need. But I think you're right. I think we're seeing now these kids growing up and coming into the workforce and they are quite happy to sit within a work environment with their headphones on working. So the communication within a work environment has just changed. And of course, COVID now, three years of working at home, changed again. So they are so used to their own thinking in their own head. It's scary because this just natural communication and talking between and with other humans is slowly just disappearing. It is. I, I know myself, I, I'm a, I work from a home office and you're, you really do notice when you, you're just not communicating with people and I'm a talker, so when I do see people, I will talk. But if you start to develop those habits where you're, you're, you're not talking to anyone and I think those incidental conversations uh, how we form our ideas and viewpoints and start to feel better or worse about things as well. And the more we're in separate rooms with our headphones on, we might be watching something that we might have, if it was on TV, we would comment, oh, what do you think about that? But if we're locked away, we're not going to talk to anyone else and it's all just going to be in our brains and that's when we overthink and depression and other issues like that can then start to creep in. I also think, obviously, we're from Mind Food, but the, the power of sitting around a table having a meal with no phones is actually a very powerful moment within a family, whatever that family construct is. Because even if they're sitting there not saying much, it is another moment. It's another avenue. It's another platform to at least have something being talked about and shared, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think that's one of the other challenges of a busy parent in the modern day is having that the strength to resist your children's peer pressure to just put those phones away. I think having those strict boundaries is essential. And it's sometimes easier said than done because kids want their phone. You might be busy. You might take a phone call. Your household is different. But I think if you can have those set times where it might not be a set conversation, but it is a set time where your phone has not come to the table or it's 
after a certain time, phone goes away, computers are off, TVs only if you must have a device. So something like that so that people are forced to be around each other to some degree and inevitably conversation will happen. Just like you say at the dinner table, conversation will happen to some degree, even if it's people eating quickly and taking off. They'll still talk. Or what they don't like eating in the meal. You'll definitely hear about that for sure. <laughs> now, Nicole, you've got a new book coming. Tell us about that. I do. I do. My book is called Obsession and it's a part memoir, part investigation into the phenomenon of stalking, actually. So that interest stemmed from a personal experience, which then moved into an investigation being a journalist. That's just a natural place to go is to look at why something happens and is it happening to anyone else and are they experiencing that in the same way that I am? So that started off, you know, it was a series of articles and then I just found it so fascinating that, um, I dove in even further and, yeah, resulted in a book. Was it hard to write because there was such a personal sort of element within that book? Yes, the memoir aspect was, it, it was strange actually. It was partly quite cathartic because it's something that I haven't spoken in detail about to people. It's just one of those things that you for some reason don't wish to talk about. It's quite a kind of private experience. But so it felt good in, in one way to, to get everything out, but it was, yeah, it's, it's reliving a difficult experience is also strange. It takes you right back there. The investigation side of it, I found really empowering and validating because people are going through a similar thing and going through the same sort of experiences that you have, but it's also quite frightening. A lot of those experiences were far worse than what I went through. And those people are are keeping even their horrifying experiences to themselves because proving and dealing with stalking is quite difficult just because of the nature of how it works. So when you set out to to write this book and start the research, did you have any idea or magnitude of the issue out there? No, I was quite surprised when I put the call out for, because I wanted to include case studies to cover the vastly different types of stalking and the different severities and things like that. And I was quite surprised at how many people reached out and even more so how many of those people hadn't really spoken to anyone about it but wanted to um, and, and felt they really wanted to hear what they could do and, and that their feelings were valid and that their fears were valid for what they were going through. So I was quite surprised. What is it that says about our society that people don't feel comfortable enough to discuss something as huge as this that happens in someone's life? I think... There's so much shame and stigma around so many issues still. I think stalking is one of those things that there's a, like the word itself is often used in a joking way. We talk about it quite flippantly where we're stalking our our friend's new partner or we're stalking someone's mum or we're talking about that on social media. Like it's funny. And a lot of the times, relationships or former relationships are involved and it just it feels a bit tacky and of course movies and books love stories like that obsession and obsessive people and it's just it's taken quite lightly and when you're going through it and it's so intense and so scary you almost feel silly in a way to talk about it you just want it to go away and you don't know whether you're overreacting until you know you're not and by then you know, it, it's late in the piece. So, did you have a good support network around you when you were going through it? I did. I have a good support network in general. I'm very lucky. But even with that, I kept it quite tight. My my partner, my now husband, he knew, and my mum. 
And as time went on, I told a couple of extra people just for my own protection, really, I, I should, but for a good solid couple of years, I kept it quite tight, just my mum and, and my partner. And that's with a good support network. So it's just, it's a strange thing to try to explain why. It wasn't until I, I got somewhere, I started to fear for my safety and I spoke to police and I eventually got through to one that was helpful that I thought, oh, I should be talking about it. Because funnily enough, I'm, I write about domestic violence a lot. So I'm always talking about how important it is to to divulge and to share stories, especially when it comes to coercive control. So it's an ironic thing that I was sitting there doing this the very thing that I was encouraging people not to do. So in keeping that to yourself for those couple of years, how do you think that affected or changed you as someone at the same stage you're writing about it and this is what you should do, but yet on the other, you're sort of so protective, understandably. But how has that changed you in terms of that thinking during that time? When I started writing about it was after I got some progress with the police. I felt a bit more validated in, you know, the police had given it a name that they charged the person with the crime and I wouldn't have probably applied that word to it. You know, I was dismissing it like a lot of people do. It's just this, I can handle it, I can cope with it until I was. So I probably wouldn't have written about it if that hadn't have happened. But while that was happening, I guess it just creates a real lot of really intense anxiety, I suppose, because you're not talking to anyone about it, but it's on your mind continuously. Everybody else's obsession, I guess, becomes your own obsession because you're waiting all the time, but not telling anyone about it. So it's a, yeah, it's a strange feeling and it just creates a lot of that sort of anxiety that you're trying to keep under control. How does it feel now? Having gone through that, the book's about to launch. Listening to you, it sounds like the book's twofold. It's going to help for people that perhaps are going through similar things. But also it opens up a lot of dialogue about this, to talk about it really. How do you feel now having gone through it? I feel in terms of talking about it in the book, obviously I have I have those natural nerves that, that people are going to know a lot of private information because I decided to, I was quite honest in the memoir part because I think, that's the whole problem is we keep everything to ourselves because we're so self-conscious or humiliated or embarrassed or whatever it is. Um, I just wanted to be quite open with that so that anyone else going through it might just not feel so bad or feel a bit more normal or a bit less crazy. I've got mixed feelings about that. I'm nervous a bit, but I feel good that, you know, I think it's important and I've seen the impact of sharing stories through all my work with domestic violence. It does make a difference and mm. it lets people know that should not be happening. What you're feeling is normal and you can do something about it. In terms of the investigation, I think it shows that here in Australia, at least, we've really got a long way to go with a crime that's so prevalent and so impactful but still is taken quite lightly. And it, it's a bit of a there's a bit of a joke still made about that sort of a crime, but it's the impact can be quite significant. Mm. I think your book is gonna help. I think your book will that discussion. That's what's needed. And putting yourself out there and taking that first very brave move. It's it is what is needed. So what's the name of the book and when does it go on sale? It is called Obsession. It goes on sale on the second of May, but it's available for pre-order now. Good on you. Good luck with that. Now, Nicole, I ask everyone on the Mind Food podcast, what has been in your life your favorite meal? 
my favorite meal. Gosh, that's almost like asking my favorite book. <laughs> that's a tricky one. I had a really beautiful, long six course meal when I got engaged and it was seafood based and seafood is my favorite food if I had to pick, if I was forced. So that would be it. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good to me. Nicole, thanks so much for being on the Mind Food Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Mind Food Podcast. We hope you found this episode informative and entertaining. If you enjoyed this content, be sure to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a rating and review. Check out Mind Food Magazine, Facebook, Pinterest and Instagram for even more smart thinking content. In our next episode, we speak to Damien Perry from Herta Gruden Cruises. Until next time, keep learning, growing and exploring. I'm Michael McHugh, founder of Mind Food.